This is Tony Silva and Charles Wiz. And this is Two Teachers Talking. Uh, Charles and I usually get together and uh, talk about different issues that we've got uh, teaching English in Japan. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about um, last month's podcast. Where the topic was pronunciation. We had our, our guest... Uh, uh, our guest, Allison Kitzman, um, talking about, uh, detail about pronunciation. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then we will, uh, move on to the idea, concept, main topic, issue, problem. I don't want to, I, I want to say problem. I think I, problem. Maybe not a problem. It's a problem. Problem is a problem. It's of, a problem. Um, machine translation and, uh, how that is, uh, Affecting what we do in the classroom, you know, computer translation, machine translation, um, and what that means for us as, uh, as educators. But, um, for everybody out there who isn't retired, um, you guys are all on break. So, hey, nice. I'm not sure whether you're being (laughs) nice about it or sarcastic for all of you who are still working. They're not retired. <laughs> well, uh, what can I say? Yeah, I'm finally on break. I'm finally on break. One school goes yeah. forever. It's frightening how long they go. But uh, yeah, yeah, over I'm finally the years. On, yeah, yeah, over the years, these breaks have really one month eroded. down, one month less per year. When I first started, yeah, it easily. was twelve. It was twelve classes a semester. Uh Right? Ah, the good old days. And now it's 16. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you know what? I, I don't think my students are learning anything more, which either is a comment about them, not. a comment about me, or a comment about everything. I, I'm going to choose the latter. So, mm. but no, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's, it's everything, it's all of it. Well, it's the idea that, you know, you just throw more time at something and you're going to get yep. results instead of. <clears throat> How you're using the time, what's being done with the time, but that's a whole other thing that yeah, we've a whole covered thing before many recently, times. There's so many studies about the like, productivity and the 40-hour work week, and uh, the I, there's a name for it, but uh, the idea is like, well, it's going to take one programmer three months to to do this, so we'll um, get nine programmers to do it, and it'll be done in three weeks. Yeah, I've, I've doesn't work that the, way. <laughs> that's yeah. There's a name for that. It's a there's a name. The, the for coders it. people, the programming about. people, talk about yeah. that assumption, right? Well, mm-hmm. if it takes one person one day, it would take three people eight hours. It's the the man work hour problem. Yeah, it's the man like work hour fallacy or something. Yeah, yeah. And then there's all the other studies that just show that nobody could really work efficiently for eight hours. Mm-hmm. They ever tell the story? I, I used to know this guy. Um, met him, American, uh, British Australian guy, was in Japan, um, and he was brought in to run a um, a subsidiary of an American company. They brought him in, and I met him at a party. We got to be pretty good friends. Really interesting guy. Um, 
And I was talking, and he's the president of the company. I said, so what do you do usually? He says, well, I show up usually. I get to work. I sit outside. I smoke a cigarette or two. You know, because it was back when he was smoking. He says, talk to some of the people. Then I go into, you know, the office, and then I work really, really efficiently for four hours. And I said, huh? And he goes, yeah. He goes, nobody could work efficiently for eight hours. So I just really do really focused four hours of work. I said, what do you do the rest of the day? He says, I play computer games. (laughs) (laughs) But his argument was that, you know, you can't really work more than four hours a day. And if you really do it focused, you'll get a lot done. And I've just been hearing more and more about that. So, yeah, that's a pretty accurate reflection of back way back when when uh, I was doing more conventional office type work. Um, Then that that seems about right. Um, You know, out of the eight hour day, you're cranking for about four hours and right. the others are you know you're there and available but um yeah it's to do it every day for eight hours would be really exhausting yeah and most people i know just you know it's a whole idea even of how the semester is designed and again 90 minute classes are you kidding me yeah right but uh but with the classes it's not with that 90 minutes it's not any less fatiguing and um the actual you know even though you you look at your clock hours in the classroom versus like someone doing like an an eight hour day um or what i think is in in not not only japan but in most countries becoming longer and longer nine hour days ten hour days Mm -hmm. um there are a lot of us uh the teachers who are (laughs) <laughs> working way more than eight hours a day. Um, Everybody I and, know is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh God, I, I can't, and um, I can't count. And uh, if I told told people how many hours I, I used to work a week, uh, you wouldn't believe me. But um, and it would be a kind of a bad reflection on myself. It's like Jesus, this guy, this guy needs <laughs> needs a lesson in time management. Exactly. He's not doing it right. Yeah. He's not doing it right. This the six the sixty, seventy hour a week stuff is not the way you're supposed to do it. So yeah. um obviously I need some I should I should find a good teacher podcast to listen to now. Yeah, fi- if you find a good one, would you let me know? I will. I, I will. keep listening to this one about these two guys who know absolutely nothing. <laughs> oh, that's us. <laughs> I remember the what I, I think I've mentioned this before, you know, Tony, when uh, I first got together with my wife and she was just enthralled by teachers' summer breaks and everything. And mm. she thought that, you know, like, <laughs> wow, you guys are just so lucky. And then about five or six or seven years into our relationship, she turned to me one day and she goes, you know, I've never seen you come home and not work. And I've never seen you not work on the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And the breaks. <laughs> right. And that's why we have the breaks. That's why we have the breaks. Yeah. And let's take a break from this. We should get on to the pronunciation, don't you think? Let's get on. Let's get, get, let's get to the, the way, pronunciation. Huh? So you had uh, Allison on last time. So I had a, mm-hmm. a day off and talked about pronunciation. And, um, you know, I listened and Allison knows a lot about pronunciation and it was helpful, especially the super segmentals and the rhythms of English versus Japanese, you know, pointing out that the biggest problem for students is they speak katakana English because they're trying to maintain Japanese rhythms, right? Mm. One syllable, one more, one count. 
So I think that was really important. And I think I've talked with you before. I'm just not sure how much of an effect we can have on most students' pronunciation after so many years of habit formation. Yeah, it's a real it's a real question of right. like return on investment. Exactly. Right? Like with the time with the time that we've got available, are there better um, things? How to much do? can we? How much can we impact? Because these are pronunciation is a um, it's not mental, really. I mean, it is it's, it is it is mental because because when you know a, 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 you're just being a foreign language, um, <clears throat> it starts obviously starts with the brain, but you've got uh, the signal that goes to the muscles. In the mouth, in the throat, and sometimes in the nose and in the chest. <laughs> different languages, different uh, uh, different kinds of sounds. Um, but it's also the muscles themselves and the training of the of the parts of our body that we use to make those sounds. You know, the lips, the tongue, the throat, the breathing, um, the time, and, and again, the timing, etc. So that blend of mental, but. It's a physical mental activity. And mental and physical. It's a, but it's a blend of mental and physical. And the mental part is maybe not so difficult, but the physical part takes time. And requires a lot of repetition. And work. Right. And then we know how good our students are at that. <laughs> right. But I think that's, that's the important point about pronunciation is you can teach it in the classroom. And like everything else, the question becomes, do the students go back and review and practice? And – with pronunciation, a lot of them are just not going to go back and practice. But I think there was the other thing that was really key to me, and this is something I have believed for a long time and I use when I'm teaching like LR pronunciation, is what you pointed out, Tony, is about that they have to be able to hear it first before right. they can pronounce it. <clears throat> Very true. Yeah. And you mentioned that in, the, in your discussion with Allison. And I've – Notice, like, whenever I try to teach somebody something, if they mispronounce a word or they ask me to teach them something, you know how you will say it, and they will immediately start repeating after you, right? And I'll go, no, 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 just listen. I'm going to say it five times, and just listen. And I say something like five times, you know, like pronunciation, 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 now say it. And it really makes a difference for them. So you have to teach them, for example, how to distinguish between L and R first before you can get them to you know, pronounce it. Mm-hmm. So I really agree with that. I think that's a key point, that there's not enough focus on hearing the specific sounds that you're asking people to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but that's, I think, the major things, uh, you know um, – that I was thinking about, I don't teach pronunciation that much in my class because, as you pointed out, return on investment is mm-hmm. not that good. And, again, my my metric for whether or not to even teach pronunciation is simply if I'm understanding the student and I think people can understand the student and it's not getting in the way of communication, then they're going to speak with an accent. They're going to speak with some you know, idiosyncrasies. The only thing I really do correct, though, is wanna, reduced forms. I hate <laughs> it, especially when they write that. I want to talk to you about something. It's like, and to demonstrate that to students, I'll use, uh, you know, certain Japanese area dialects, what we call bends, right? You know, like Kansai mm-hmm. Ben. And I'll talk, I'll say something in Kansai Ben, and the entire class will start laughing, Right. Because they think mm. it's really funny. And I say, that's what it sounds like to us when you guys use reduced forms. 
you're not native speakers, right? So those kinds of corrections, I think, make sense. I think elementary school, there should be much more of a focus on pronunciation. But at university level, I would probably not be te- – or I am not. I have not really taught it that much. Maybe over the course of 16 weeks, I might spend, oh, I don't know, a maximum of like 10 minutes. 10 minutes would be a lot of pronunciation time for, for me in a class, I think. What's your in a nor- in a normal communication class? Yeah, I yeah, in a normal if, yeah we taught oh, yeah. I mean, I've never taught a, like a pure pronunciation class, <clears throat> which would make me crazy. And I think God, that's just such torture for students. Well, I've done that, and I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about what I used to do to alleviate that tor- you know, to minimize the torture. But um, one of the other one of the uh, first maybe a question um, you free. What do you do with um? A student who's got the, um, I don't know, I'll call it the wooden tongue syndrome. You know, just, and I, I don't know if it's genetic and I don't know if it's, um, just a, a factor of the, um, uh, the, the Japanese that they've learned, but you've had the students who's, who have tongues that just don't work. And it's never going to be possible for them to pronounce English. Have you, do you know, well, number one, do you know what I'm talking about? Number two, have you had, have you had any kind of effective way to deal with that? Okay. I think I know what you're talking about. So I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But in terms of, okay. So let's say I really want to improve my students' pronunciation. What I'll do is I'll demonstrate what I call the, uh, the chopstick technique. I think we've talked about this before. You tell students that they should take out like a pen or I guess you can't do this anymore, but let's say you put a chopstick and you, you put the tip between your teeth. Okay. And then you tell them to speak without touching their lips to the chopstick. And what that, what, uh, and I should preface this by saying, to to explain pronunciation for to Japanese students, what I'll do is I'll start um, talking in English, and I'll stop moving my mouth. So I put the chopstick in my mouth, right between my teeth, and then I don't move my lips, and I'll say, and they're like, I have no idea, and then I'll really in enunciate i'll say do you understand what i'm talking about and they'll go okay and then i'll do the opposite for japanese where i'll really move my mouth when speaking japanese and it sounds really funny and they laugh and then i don't move my mouth and speak japanese and they're like whoa because most of them don't understand that japanese has very minimal lip movement yeah and if you really move your mouth when you speak in english you will get that much better, you know, pronunciation because you're just, you know, enunciating better. So that's how I solve that problem. It's with the chopstick. Mm. And that's also what I give my students when they're preparing for presentations. I'll go, you mm. got to give your whole presentation. You practice your presentation <clears throat> with this chopstick in your mouth. Make sure you try it as much as possible. Your lips do not touch the chopstick. And then really get that nice mouth movement. That's what I do. Oh, that's cool. That's a good, good thing. Um, I have a, just some observations about um, – Alice and I talked a little bit about um, dialects and accents and things and just some 
things from media that um, are kind of interesting and maybe and maybe you know pronunciation teachers can use these types of things um but uh, there's a there's an actor a uh, british actor uh who is like the exception approves the rule uh Hugh Laurie oh yeah and uh, his and, and i guess maybe his most famous tv appearance was a series called house doctor house and um in the in the in the tv series and in a lot of the movies that he's been in uh you would never you'd never know guess he was that british he's from england yeah, <laughs> <laughs> never, never, because he is again exception that proves a rule. It's just his his American accent is perfect. But that's you, ne- you would never guess, and that's but but that's so unusual. Right? Not really. It's these actors. It's these actors are um, they're just incredible with accents. Yes, and it's yeah. I, I keep you see it on YouTube all the time. Like I think it was uh, Emily Blunt. When mm-hmm. she was doing some TV show and they were giving her like, okay, German, go, Russian, go, French, go, you know, Argentine. And she was getting all these accents down. Yeah, some some don't do so well. Some don't. But <laughs> and some even American actors trying to do regional accents um have a very, very hard time. Of course. Um and um uh, one of the other ones that was like again kind of proves uh uh, follows the rule or like flounce the rule. Um, <clears throat> it was a, um, TV series, uh, about Russian spies in the United States, the Americans. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it's a couple that, you know, marriage of not convenience, professional marriage. Um, they are, they are married because they are spies and they come to the United States. And, um, as, you know, young adults, and they have zero Russian accents. Yeah, it's like it's very interesting. Buzzer, buzzer. No, this is not going to happen. You do not, as a young adult, drop your Russian accent and come into the United States and sound like you're from wherever they were, D.C. or Boston or whatever. No, 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 it doesn't happen. But at least they could have spoken Russian with better accents. <laughs> the Russian was bad, exactly. So that's that's kind of more what it's like. Is you're never unless you know you're really gifted, Hugh Laurie, Emily Blount. Um, it's going to be very very hard to 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 lose your accent, and I think it's like folly to try to to correct that. Yes. And, um, and uh, you, uh, um, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Maybe enough. Yeah. Accents. Move, it's move like on, the, right? you're gonna, you're not going to sound like a native, and the idea of teaching people to sound like a native what? A native. Uh, you want to sound like somebody who's American, who's British, who's Australian. You know, there's so many varieties. Crocodile of, Dundee. Yeah. <laughs> right, might. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, might. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So we're never going to sound Australian either. It's going to say, like, "Gee, don't just just don't, don't just, just don't. stop stop <laughs> just stop <don't>. stop." <laughs> and uh, just a real life observation. The other thing, I don't know that. Probably, I'm I'm sure that you've never like <laughs> had the time to, to to deal with it in class, and no, maybe nobody has. But just like a very interesting observation that I've had about um, returnees, uh, a lot of times uh, kids will. Uh, Come back and and it's mostly from the United States because okay you know a student does you know does a, a year abroad in Australia they're going to come back with a with an Australian accent or a year in England they're going to come back with a British accent but 
in the United States, where there's so many different regional, I'm, I'm not, you know, in, in England, obviously there are as well, uh, not only regional accents, but international accents. And, um, I'll have students come back from California and, uh, be either from students that were in classes with them or some of them, um, in their, you know, part-time jobs or the neighborhoods. And the students from California come back with, uh, Mexican Spanish accents, Hispanic mm. accents. And they'll sound like they're from Mexico or the ones that come from, have been in Texas and they come back with a Texas twang. Or more, most recently I had a student who spent a year in, uh, Toronto. And she worked in a Japanese restaurant. The Japanese restaurant was staffed mostly by Chinese Canadians, I guess. And so <laughs> when she came back to Japan, her English was, um, all Chinese. <laughs> it's like, man, you're, you know, your English is kind of funny. I mean, we, I mean, her English was good enough that we would talk, and, and we were good enough friends. We, uh, talked, enough, you know, enough to say, say, yeah, 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 you know, you sound Chinese. But, um, before we get on to the, uh, computer translation, um, I thought I, I want, cause I didn't get a chance last week to talk about it, and I want to, I want to get this out. Um, talk about stuff, cause I, cause I have taught pr- pronunciation class. I've taught dedicated pronunciation classes, and I took a lot, lot of, um, oral, uh, presentation and speech type classes. And in those classes, of course, uh, we'll include things like in, enunciation, intonation, accent, emphasis, but, you know, the super, super segmentals that we talked about last week. Um, vocal projection, uh, pace, timing, rhythm. Um, and one of the things that, um, I always emphasize with them that helps with all of these things. And again, it's like, I, I get a little bit of resistance, but things that just kind of come if, for example, when you're talk, t- teaching uh, presentation or speech classes, <clears throat> again, mentally, if you can get the students, remember, don't talk to the first row. You talk to the last row. And if in your head, you're talking to somebody in the last row, ding, 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 everything falls into place. Your volume goes up. Your pace slows down. Your enunciation is more detailed uh, because you're speaking slower. You have time to think about yes, your yes, intonation yes. and your presentation. So all those things uh, chuck right along if you're talking to the back of the room. Um, and I, it, it, what I like about that also is that it's um, uh, not – it's proactive rather than corrective – it's rather than prescriptive. So really the hard part that I have with pronunciation is that it, you, it's very easy to fall into that trap of, of overcorrection. And what I try to do with all my classes is to encourage them to make mistakes. And then we get into pronunciation. And it's like, what am I doing as I'm correcting mistakes? Um, and I try to avoid that as much as possible. And that's like one thing that I did in class that um, I found really, really, really helpful. Um, you, it was, I like, you mentioned like talking about dialects. And if I have one of these classes or if we're actually talking about pronunciation, I, one of the things that I do is I, I put the student in groups. Luckily, I was in situations where I had enough students from different parts of Japan. That I have them talk about their own dialects and compl- uh, compare their own 
um, you know, compare their dialects, their accents, their pronunciation, what they say. So even, even something very, very basic, like Ohio, right? Like the, the, the you know, good morning. In Kansai, when you say it, it's different from other parts of Japan. In Kansai, we'll say Ohio in the afternoon. That's not common in other parts of Japan. And you get people from Nagoya, because they, in Nagoya, like people from Chicago, there's a, there's a lot more nasal. Um, the, and they, they, I think they call in the, so the, the people from Nagoya sound like cats. <laughs> well, that's kind of like um, what they call Zuzu Ben, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know, as we tell people, why is it Zuzu Ben? It's because it's so cold. You just But yeah, I, I think that's a good thing is to have them to develop their, you know, the awareness. It's not even meta awareness. Yes. It's just initial the awareness yeah. that it's like, uh, oh, yeah. dialects and accents are different. But <clears throat> talking about correction, excuse me there. Um, you know, it's often I would try to correct their katakana English because that can really mm. get in the way, right? Well, that's, that's for me, that's the big one. I yeah, mean, right. For me, that is katakana and the use of uh, the Japanese kana spelling of English sounds. For me, that my opinion, that that's the big one. Right. That is, yeah. that is it. Yeah, and for people who are outside of Japan, um, foreign words are spelled with a special alphabet. But because of the way Japanese sounds work, you know, like kaki, kuke, ko, you get to students who speak like this. And I used to do that to the students so they could hear what it sounds like, right? So I'd say something and then I'd repeat it. But then you could see the students all looking, nodding their heads and going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, I understand. So, so, I got it. Okay. Suddenly yeah. I can speak I, I well, understand. I what can saying. understand English now. He's really clear. <laughs> so I gave up on well, that. That's, that's, that's the problem with that telephone game, right? Because you think, oh, yeah, you do that telephone game. But well, no, what they do is they revert to <laughs> speaking in a way that the other one's going to understand. Do, and, do. and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. It's fine. But you get to the end and they got it. But it's. Not English. <laughs> right. And so I used to always, you know, model the katakana English for them. And then what ha- this last year or two, I just started speaking Japanese with like a real American accent, you know, and I'd kind of go, Watashi wa America Jean des. And they would just start laughing. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's how you sound like to us when you use katakana English. And they go, ah. But again, they revert back to it. You know, some mm-hmm. of the students just speak katakana English, and there's nothing I could do to get a long-lasting change. I can point it out. I can correct them in on in place at that time in the class. And they'll just come back, you know, at five minutes later, and it's it's habit formation. And I just yeah, don't... Yes, and it's, it's maybe... And sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's just habit, but um, sometimes it's volition. Sometimes it, there is... The student does not understand or want to, two things, um, actually have it, you know, eliminate that Japanese accent. Um, there's... It's... There's... A, in some... We talk about this, like... Um, you know, uh, planned failure. It's like a failure by design. They don't want to. And there's like a negative thing to, to, to speaking without a Japanese accent. They want, they want to retain it. Well, there's also, for I think, reasons. yeah, there's that. But, you know, we, we have to address the fact too that we have the majority of students, I think people are teaching 
are in general education required language classes, and most of the students just don't care. They're not going to be speaking English, right? They're it's not it's not something that they're really focused on. I mean, I'm you know making a generalization here, but I'm thinking. Depending on the school you're teaching, the level, you know, sometimes you're getting students who, you know, have such limited knowledge of English because they just have not studied that much or whatever their experiences are. And what are you going to do? You're going to spend your time trying to improve their pronunciation for the limited vocabulary they have when instead you could be focused on vocabulary or listening, reading, or as what we're going to kind of talk a little bit later, what I'm going to think is that, you know, Reading and or writing is you know much more important for them now than it was yeah, yeah, you know yeah. ten years ago. So again, I understand the importance. I think you know a five to ten minute component. Um, you know, maybe you've talked Tony about some of the tools people can use. Like you know, like I remember years and years ago, I had a girlfriend, and this was back when you could say to um, the Mac computer, you could go, "Hey, computer," or something, right? Or go, computer, mm. this is before Siri. Don't say that. Yeah. Oh, there it goes. Okay. <laughs> and um, by the way, by the way, do you know that um, the name Alexis has been like <laughs> – Don't say that either. <laughs> no, no, no. People have stopped naming their children that. Because of course. Of the, yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's really funny. But anyway, she um, she saw me doing this while I was trying to use vo- you know voice um, – you know, speech mm-hmm. to text or whatever. And she would go, computer, <laughs> and it wouldn't do anything. And she just spent, I remember, respond. like 20 minutes trying to get the computer to work. So you've talked about this, I think, that there are some Yeah, apps. and I, I, want, I want to get to that because I use a lot of that tech stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I want to get to that too because that, that technology can really uh, be helpful in the classroom. Um, but um, – before we get to that, let me just get through some of this other stuff. Um, so when, again, not the general conversation classes, but the dedicated pronunciation classes or the pronunciation component of like presentation and speech type classes and things. Um, usually I would choose like a book with, um, minimal pairs and use that and drill them to the, to the point of fatigue. You have to really, really be careful. Um, about fatigue, both mental and physical with pronunciation. Cause when we're, we're working with pronunciation, their, their mouth, my mouth gets tired. You need to mix it up. You need to mm. move it around and do different types of things. So we'll, we'll different kinds of things. Well, um, we talked a little bit about voice actors and so different kinds of accents. And so I'll demonstrate to them. What, uh, you know, a, a sentence or a phrase in, in, in British English or in American English or Australian English, what the differences are. Heavy use of video, um, whether it's, uh, TV shows or movies, um, would make, cause, you know, I've got a microphone, um, my own audio content for, for them to use as a model and, uh, you know, as much as possible for those, obviously, um, uh, flatten out my Chicago accent as much as possible, make it uh, generic, you know, standard American English. Um, funny story, I don't know if I mentioned it with, with Allison, but I had a very interesting experience because, you know, in Japan, I generally, I, I, and especially in the classroom, um, I pretty much 
flatten, I think, um, my Chicago accent, but, um, had a, an Australian friend and, uh, he was leaving Japan before he wanted, left Japan. He wanted to visit the United States. He says, okay, we, we, we did a trip and, uh, I took him to Chicago, showed him around. And so we visited, um, my brother. And so my brother and I are very, very different. And he is just like steeped in Chicago. He's not a traveler, uh, very, very limited, almost no international experience, Mexico and Canada. And, uh, you know, not, you know, not uh, any postgraduate work or anything. So um, he, uh, he's he got a really heavy Chicago. So I'm sitting there. It was, there's the three of us in, in the living room. My brother with a really heavy Chicago accent and the Australian guy with this really heavy Australian accent. And they're laughing at each other about the way that they're speaking. And I'm looking at the both of them. It's like, damn, this is... <laughs> This is all pretty weird. And it was a really nice little vignette of like um, uh, the, di- the differences in languages. Um, but I put, tried to put as much of that as I could. But a lot of times we're not even aware ourselves of not, not only usage differences. Like, like I, talk, I did talk about this in, in last month. Um, you know, names of things, right? So sidewalk, gangway, walkway. Uh, boulevard, a uh, highway, um, those in different parts of the United States all have different meanings. I assume that they all probably also have different, you know, meanings in England and Australia. You know, just like car parts, like, you know, in the United States, a hood in Australia, it's a bonnet. And in the United States, it's an elevator and it's a lift. But a lot of times we don't know that. And the words we might know, but pronunciation and listening, we might not be aware of it. We just think that it's universal and it's not. It Maybe it's regional. But isn't um, that more of a vocabulary form. issue? It's more of a vocabulary issue, but it's also a pronunciation. Con- controversy. Controversy. Wait, nobody says that. <laughs> yes, they do. Aluminum. Yes. No, it's aluminum. Controversy. But no, nobody says controversy. Who says controversy? Well, British there's English. It's not contra- It's not controversy. It's pronounced differently. Okay. Aluminum. Aluminum. Okay. Alu- I, I aluminum. Aluminum. And then there's Whatever. schedule, yeah. schedule. Yeah, yeah. There you go. But yeah, controversy is pronounced differently. It's, yeah, but it's very, very different. But when you talk about like you know parkway, highway, right? Well, that's vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's vocabulary. But my point is, my point is, it's vocabulary, but we're not aware of it. And also with pronunciation, we're also not aware of it. Um, and well, we just and and example um, that you know the, the the word like for example hat cat. Your student is going to say hot doll, which sounds like a pigeon. But they're going to say "hato" and say, "Okay, well, um, you going to cor- you're going to correct that, but are you going to correct? You're going to are you going to force that "ah," which is American pronunciation, of or "ha," which is the British pronunciation. And you, know, you need to think that. I mean, that's a gross example, but there's a lot of others that again we're not aware of like controversy when you hear it you didn't know that's you hear controversy no that's not how you say it you say it controversy 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 um 
and I've done it, especially my earlier years, where it's corrected <clears throat> as wrong, something that was totally acceptable in in uh, different forms of English. So anyway, something to think about. But uh, to get to you, you, you were talking about the use of tech, right? And um, getting your student to understand the computer, 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 computer. Um, yeah, it's a very, very uh, strict uh, teacher. But uh, it's really useful to get them to um, use um, dictation to their device, whether it's their phone or their their, their PC, their, their computer, whatever it is, to um, you know, type out what the what the user is saying, um, you know, with the caveat that's really difficult um, because yeah, is it that like, caveat? There you go. Caveat, caveat. What's the correct pronunciation? I think it's caveat. Where are you from? <laughs> Where are you from? How do you say it? Um, and, but that, again, that's, that's really, really, um, kind of a high bar. But, um, if they have a recording of, of any kind, right? Whether it's a TV show, movie, recording their own voice on their device and playing it back and comparing it to the original can be really helpful. It could really, Combines, as you mentioned, the listening and the speaking skills. And if a student really wants to work on their uh, pronunciation, that can be really good. And um, um, text to speech, where the phone or the, the computer reads the text to you, has gotten really good. Yeah. And it's, and I think it it's already good enough. So that yeah, you know, there might be a danger if the, if the student is relying entirely on text to speech to to, to to their for their pronunciation, like for example here, not not not. There's no danger with like the words, right? And cat hat, but with the where the computer <laughs> and the student might there might be an issue is the uh, the, the super segmentals, right? The actual intonation and flow of a sentence, the pauses, the things that we think of as natural. Uh, that is one thing where the one area where the computer might fall down a little bit, but it's gotten pretty good. And for most of our students, if they can, if they can do that, well, we're, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, that uh, the technology can, I think, make a difference, and um, and I guess we're kind of done with that pronunciation stuff, huh? Well, the only thing I'm going to add to this is uh, okay. it just because it's something you reminded me. And whenever you know we have to take role sometimes, right, or often, and students will say "hea." Uh-huh. So I teach them, you got to say here, I'll call their name and they'll say here. And then I teach, you know, I always say, thank you, you're welcome. That's a good time to, you know, practice something. So you can give like a word that you want the students to practice. So you might want to say, instead of saying here today, I want you to say, this is right, you know, or I am here or something. And it at least gives all the students a chance to hear each other. But that's the last thing I have to say on that, mm. you know, so. Yeah, that can, that can be fun. I know that um, in one of the 
one of the, well, I guess not one of, but probably as it over the years kind of honed and changed things. Um, one of my favorite phrases to include in a lot of the, uh, I, you know, I'd make extensive study guides, sentence, you know, minimal pairs and then, um, sentences and then conversation bits and make study guides where they've got it in writing, um, in writing and, and I would make recordings for them, but I would always, by the end, I was making a real point of including the, uh, phrase, well, the item, uh, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich, which is really hard for Japanese students because, uh, they, it, that, that phrase includes a lot of borrowed words already and they're used to pronouncing many of those words wrong. So, for example, I say bacon and our students will say bacon. Um, lettuce is a retasu and, uh, and, and sandwich, a sandwichi. So they've learned all those words, but they've learned them all with, as, as we pointed, we talked about already, the katakana pronunciation. But it was really, Wonderful when uh, they did for their one of their final projects. They had to do some kind of oral um, presentation, which could also be like a, a little skit or whatever it was. And they almost all included <laughs> somehow ordering a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And it was it was wonderful. We we had a we had a great time. You know, we we should wrap this part up, but you know, you just reminded me um, many many years ago. <laughs> I had a car in Japan, and it was a Nissan Laurel, okay? Okay. <laughs> and I, no matter people would say, so what kind of car do you drive? I'd say, a Laurel. <laughs> and they go, oh, what? And i say, a Nissan Laurel. And um, it, in Japanese, it was like, Roreru, or whatever. Um, uh-huh. The point is that I want to know, number one, why do Japanese car makers, especially like Toyota, keep naming cars with L's and R's in their yeah, names? Yeah, why use the L's and the R's? Why is there like a Corolla? <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of pronunciation, just on the other side, um, I had a really funny experience. My wife has been like just uh, really teasing me about this for like months now. I went into a, a bakery and uh, my wife said, would you just go get some croissants? So I said, okay. So I go into the shop and, you know, with Japanese and I say, I'd like some croissants. And they go, what? <laughs> I said, croissant. And then I'm like, anyway, the point was yeah. that the Japanese Big pronunciation guy. of croissant is kuroasan. I would never have guessed that. How about and how do you how do you in in Japanese say croquet? Croquet. <laughs> Took me a long time to figure out what that was. Yeah. Well, I have to teach oh. students. You know, like you know, they laugh because I say, "Yeah, Americans say karaoke for you know karaoke." Yeah, 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 that's a good right. And then they laugh at you know, and you say, um, "Yeah, you know, like Americans say futon, and we say Nikon, and they're all like, ha ha ha." You can see my students going, "Foolish Americans," and I go, "Yeah." And then for McDonald's, you guys go, "McDonald's." <laughs> it's like, uh-huh. nope, nobody's going to understand that, mm. right? So I think it goes back to for me, the pronunciation is simply become aware that there are differences in words that you think you might not be aware or pronounce differently. And, you know, learn how to, you know, get some corrective strategies, you know, speak yep. slower, you know, if somebody doesn't understand you and it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's important for students to know that it's a pronunciation problem rather than like a grammar problem. That's the most, I think, 
And yeah, you know, that's that's a good point. That's a good, yeah. very good point. Right. So you have to help them understand. You know, maybe some tools to like, you know, say, you know, like I'm sorry. Is it my pronunciation or my grammar? And you know, for that's a really useful skill for them when they go overseas. I think so. But other than yeah. that, I think you know, I think we've covered. You know, at least my response to we got it. We, we got, got it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, machine translation or computer translation. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, this this is basically from this conversation we've had, right, Tony? Where I told you I was going through yep. um, a bunch of homework. I got really behind in my grading, and I had given students, you know, some very simple, you know, write five sentences about um, what you liked or didn't like in a TED talk, for example. And it would be something like one sentence should be about the speaker's gestures. One sentence should be about something, you know, you liked that they talked about something, you found it, et cetera, right? And I was going through everything. And even like, you know, like, what did you do for a weekend? Talk about your best friend, you know, answer some questions, write about it. And there was no question that literally, literally 100% of these students had used machine translation. Oh, one student I could tell did not. But these are lower level students. They're not English majors. And I'm pretty sure that 100% of them had gone in and used machine translation. And we're talking about DeepL more than, uh, you know, Google. Deep, for those of you who don't know, D-E-E-P-L.com, really, really good machine translation. And these students obviously were just doing all their work in machine translation. And then they were doing their final presentations, which I tell them never to write out. And of course, they totally ignore that. And I'd go from room to room and I'd listen to them. And, you know, students would be talking about, you know, the, you know, the parameters of differential equations or something. And I'm like, Wait a second. If I ask you, you know, what did you do with your friend last week? You know, you use basically one or two syllable words. The idea that you would even know to use, you know, parameters, for example, is not a word you looked up. And you could listen to them and they were all reading. Uh, very few of them were actually speaking, you know, according to the way I told them from notes or from like mind maps or memos. And it really was surprising to see that literally, really, almost all the submitted homework, all the written submitted homework, was pretty clearly machine translation. So, how do you when when you get those kinds of submissions? How do you score that, or what's your well grading? What happened that? was I was behind on the grading, so you know I was doing like four or five weeks at a time, and it was kind of too late to get back to the students. But earlier I told students, I said, on these assignments, do not use machine translation. And they just ignore you. <sighs> right. And um, so I kept, I couldn't lower, you know, I like tried to lower their points, but then you, ha you once you start curving, right. For the grade, because if suddenly all your students, you know, you're giving, you know, out of 25 students, 20 are getting like, you know, 48 points average, right? You have mm -hmm. to adjust the curve. So that accomplished literally nothing for me. And I looked at that and I'm like, you know, I don't know what this means any longer for 
asking my students to write answers to questions, even, you know, textbook questions. The only thing I can think of is that they have to hand in. I was thinking, oh, I'll just have them write the answers, you know, hand write the answers. And I thought, no, they're just going to put it into machine translation and then copy out what they see. And I'm beginning to think that there's a, Got to change things. I mean, I think I told you I was going to go to just quizzes for the next semester. Right. Right. right, Because I don't see the value of using a writing exercise as a teaching tool or a learning tool anymore. And this goes back to something I've been talking a lot to people, which is, you know, do we really need to teach students English since, you know, the emphasis really is moving more, you know, if students are at an international company, let's say what, what Japanese people would call an international company or a foreign company or their deal, they're a subsidiary, most of their communication is going to be through SNS, you know, like or a Slack channel or email. Reading and writing becomes more important and they're going to basically be using machine translation to write things out. And the machine translation is getting pretty good. And I really wondered now whether we need to think about teaching English like the way um, Latin is taught in the United States. It's more of a mental discipline or English or foreign languages are taught to students who really want to learn them. And that we should really be focusing on teaching our students how to really effectively use machine translation tools for communication. But I don't, you know, it was just, even though I know this and I've been thinking about it and been just talking about it with people, just the overwhelming number of obviously machine translated assignments. I mean, some students obviously just use machine translation for everything. Now, you, this does beg the question as to how does one know it's machine translation? And, you know, one of the real tells is that, you know, when there's uh, the misuse of uh, the gender pronoun, he or she. Sure, sure, sure. Right. That's a giveaway. And then, yeah, 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 and then but the, the lack of grammatical errors. And, right. And the lack of errors, sure. The lack of errors and then the huge vocabulary. <laughs> vocabulary, I'm, I know my students have no access to because you ask them and you say, hey, you use this word in your in your homework. And they go, huh? And <laughs> so that's but that, yeah what word what word was that yeah but, it's uh, like that also, that also I mean they can just use a dictionary right that they don't know the word but it's not that they're it's yeah right I understand and the problem with the machine translation as a learning tool I think is that they're just translating so much it's not like looking up a word in a dictionary then writing it down as a word to learn sure 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 that's not so true. Yeah, I mean that, it's that's just using a so I think this is we're at a turning point because DeepL for example is getting so good. I mean, it's really um, – so, for example, I can pretty much – because I write – I've gotten into the habit of writing short, very clear sentences, you know, with almost no adjectives. Um, when I put my English into DeepL for Japanese translation and my wife checks it, she's just like, yeah, you know, you could just send this. It's pretty good. Cool. Right? So – I think we're at a turning point right now. It's no um, longer it's no longer Google Translate where you know what was the the old tell was it. 
The sentences yeah, always the started. It's always a pronoun. It, right? Or um, English, right? English, Japanese pronouns are always a big one because they're just the nouns are just uh, the subject of a sentence is often dropped off in Japanese, and right, it'll often throw something something in there, whatever it is. We don't know what it is. Well, I always know that um, uh, <laughs> my students are using machine translation. Um, because um, I found out that if you if you write in machine translation like DeepL and you write hello, um, it comes out as konnichiwa. <laughs> and nobody starts an email with konnichiwa, <laughs> which is, you know, hello. <laughs> so I'm thinking that there is a real question now about teaching and how to teach and, you know, how do we cope with machine translation? Well, it's a it's it, it, a lot depends on exactly what it is that you're teaching. So I, I'm coming at this from a different tack, and um, yeah, the retired tack. Well, no, when I have to, <laughs> yeah, that's true too. So yeah, easy for me to say. But um, um, with um, my students who uh, talking mostly about writing here, so this is not really about. Um, you know, writing a short answers or like writing a sentence or so. But um, um, I very, very um, heavy-handedly tell them uh, that, uh, you know, this um, computer translation is fine for reading. That's no, 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 you're doing your research for your papers that you want to, you get a web page. It's like, and I show them, this is, this is how you do it. You, you, you have this whole web page. You want to see it in Japanese. It's great. But I want you to do the research in English. You can't understand it. Go to Japanese. Fine. It's great. And I warned them, and, and I and will explain to you and to our listeners and to them <laughs> um, why I say that. But, but um, I will not tolerate computer translation. Moreover, moreover, um, this is not about computer translation. It's about any translation. You should not, you are not to write it in Japanese and translate it into English if you're writing an essay, if you're writing a paper. Because if you do that, you are going to find yourself in really, really big trouble. Um, it's got to be done in English, just like with reading. When you're teaching reading, it's like if you're reading less than 200 words per minute, you're not reading. You're translating. You're changing it from English to Japanese to the idea. That's not reading. That's translating. You need to go from the word to the idea. And you can't do that, then you re the reading material is too difficult. And if the kids can't write in English, then the, the, the assignment's too hard. But machine translation, computer translation is fine at the phrase or the sentence level. Uh, but when you get to paragraphs and essay structure, your computer translation is going to put you on your ass. <laughs> what, what's going to come out is going to be perfect English, and it's going to be incomprehensible. You lose it entirely. And I have uh, on my webpage, and I will include the link in the show notes, uh, an example, and this is from, we, we see it often in uh, Japan Times or any of my Nietzsche, any of the Japanese newspapers where they will have uh, uh, an article, essay, 
that's been written in Japanese and translated, quote-unquote, perfectly. There's no grammar errors. Every sentence, sentence for sentence, each one is, let's call it perfect. I'll give the benefit of the, let's call it perfect. And if you read it as a native speaker, you get a headache and you have no idea what the hell this person is trying to say. Because there's meaning in the structure and there's meaning in the paragraphs. And the, st- the structure of an essay in Japanese and in English are completely different. You cannot translate <laughs> um, an essay from Japanese to English sentence by sentence. You need to step back and rebuild it because that's where the, 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 the that's where the meaning is. The introduction, the the logical structure of an essay in English is very very different. From the an essay that'd be written in the original Japanese, so, and I tell my students, it's like, yeah, if you have a hard time with a sentence, okay, but be aware that even the sentence might be problematic. Um, when we write or communicate in English, um, it's way more direct and. For example, we need to consider carefully, uh, we need to consider this issue of carefully for the future. Translated from the Japanese in English, it means zero. <laughs> this is not a course of action we need to consider. This is not, <laughs> that is, okay, whether it's the machine that's translating it or whether it's the person that's translating it, that's a Japanese sentence. Well, and it doesn't fly in English. Well, this is where, Again, I was you know, saying that I think we have to change the way we teach because if I teach my students the basic structure of an English paragraph, topic sentence, supporting sentences, detail, and example sentences, and they write that in <clears throat> Japanese, when they translate it, it's going to work. Yeah, but if, they, but if they're doing, if they're doing that structure in Japanese, then I think your job is done. I think that's fine. You've taught them how to think. You've taught them how to structure the okay, ideas. That's exactly yeah. where I'm going with this. That's okay. exactly where I'm going with this, which mm. is that I think the change we have to make is the focus on, for example, in writing, is to say, look, the technology's there. If you can understand the structure of a paragraph or, you know, the introduction, basic argumentation – um, you know, you'll be able to write your sentences, you know, write simple Japanese sentences. They'll come out perfectly fine in machine translation in the right order. The problem with that is the students who are understanding that are not beginning level students most of the time. Correct. And there is so I, I don't have like clear answers right now. And, um, or I do have. Yeah, a, that's what I was. I was maybe I, suggesting. I said it's like that. Maybe the assignments too hard. So we really have to like create assignments and give them things that like steps, right? So steps, like so, building blocks and making sure that our uh, what we're asking them to do is commensurate with their ability, which is not obvious. And it goes back to like what we would talk about all the time about um, needs assessment, right? But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I have ideas about this. And I think it'll be best left for another podcast since we're kind of getting close to our hour mark. The point is that I don't know how many times I've turned to people and I've said, well, you know, who are you know involved in English teaching. 
and especially like the master students or graduate students. And I've said, so what are you doing about uh, machine translation? And they're like, oh, I don't bother with it. I said, why not? And they said, well, machine translation will never be good enough. And I'm like, when's the last mm-hmm. time you use machine translation? And there's just this refusal from a lot of people, I think, in the field to say, look, we're at a turning point right now. That's going to impact how we teach students, especially students who are not going to be using English a lot in their lives. And this calls into question a lot about the entire, you know, reason and rationale for teaching English. And when I say that, I think it's becoming like Latin in the sense that almost no one speaks Latin, but Latin is taught as you know, a way to develop thinking, you know, discipline thinking, rigor, logical thinking. I think that we have to start looking to teach our students more about how discourse is structured, more, you know, more, you know, rhetoric. And part of it, I, I've argued before, is that, you know, it's usually the traditional way of teaching a language has been to teach vocabulary, grammar, you know, and then build up that. And then when students get more advanced, we start teaching them pragmatics, you know, concepts about register. And I think it's all flipped now. I think we have to spend more time teaching register so students know that when they're using machine translation, hey, you got to make sure you're checking for this. You know, you can't just say hi in a business letter. You have to say, you know, hello in the same way we would teach them that. But to bring that kind of awareness and say, hey, when you're writing, if you're going to use machine translation for your, you know, writing, then you need to structure your paragraphs based on the rules of English discourse. And that's one of those basic changes I think we have to start shifting to. And I think we have to start admitting that it's, oh, you and I have argued about this for so long, right, Tony? But, mm. you know, I, I think it's only we're we're about five to ten years away before we have, you know, um, on-demand translation that is really good. And it's going to be that old Terminator thing, right? You know, where <laughs> he has the responses, he gets three or four responses from the computer, and then he has to choose the proper one. It's going to be mm. exempt, you know. Students are going to need to know which translation option to choose when they respond. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly. And it's not that far years. away, I think. No, 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 no. Certainly within ten years. I think it's um, going to come sooner than self-driving cars. Good bet. That would be a good bet. I don't know which one I would bet on. <laughs> I would bet on. Question. I bet on that machine translation will be more effective, efficient. Well, it's certainly safer. Safer, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's certainly, if you're a conscious. But uh, well, the the, the different, the one thing, and, and I, I, I kind of agree with you, like language, foreign language study, comparing it to Latin. But the big difference is, is that nobody speaks Latin. Everybody speaks English, and I don't mean that out of hubris and out about any kind of hegemonic <laughs> attitude, but native English Isn't it speakers hegemonic? and. It is. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> There's our pronunciation. Do we, do we have a pronunciation? Next but I understood I what you see, but obviously I understood what go. you were saying because I could correct you. But, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's the world language. Is it a second language? What are you going to study? It's, uh, some people thought Chinese. I mean, that's not such a, well, that's, I don't know about that, but yeah, okay, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, Japanese. That's how I ended up in Japan. It's because the 21st century can be Japanese, uh, the Japanese century. But, um, 
Yeah, everybody speaks English. So as a lingua franca, it's, did I mispronounce that? Um, is kind of their soul. And, and, but it's a different thing, right? And so what we're talking about is like, we were talking a much higher level of English proficiency and, uh, communicating at a higher level of discourse rather than, you know, the basic, you know, travel, you know, you go to Greece and it's like, well, no, you didn't study Greek, but you studied some English and probably somebody there is going to be able to speak English. Um, but, and for that, your computer translation, you know, your phone is going to be fine. Yeah. Except I remember, uh, I was talking, uh, Paul Dation was, uh, in Japan and, um, we had him on the podcast a long time ago, uh, and he was telling me that he had to get his computer repaired. And so he just was, this is like years ago. So it's got to easily be, oh, something like 13, 14 years ago. And he said that he had one of those little things where you type in, you know, those machines, you type in a mm-hmm, phrase mm-hmm. and it pumped yeah. out the English. Called, and he said he was phones. able, and he, so the Japanese guy at the shop, he said, was also using the machine. And he said he was able to get his computer fixed. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, for but I, I'm trying to say that we have so many students who English is just not something they really want to spend time learning. Sure, okay, it's a significant proportion of students. Um, there are students who love languages and are learning like English or German or Hungarian, Turkish, you know, Farsi, whatever, um, because they really want to, you know, immerse themselves in the language and the culture. But I can tell you at you know. Like from in my GE classes, especially if you're not teaching advanced level, if you're at the lower level, most of the students are struggling and they're probably not going to improve from one year of English, you know, having, you know, three hours a week for 32 weeks. And I think it makes a lot more sense to teach them how to use machine translation, like how to write, you know, to teach them instead of writing, teach them to write simple, short, concise sentences. And you know how hard I am on my students because I have the rule of 12. But by the way, speaking of this, this might be an interesting way to end the machine translation note. I was reading an article, um, I think it was in Wired Magazine or some other tech site that was talking about um, how to write your resumes for, you know, the AIs that are, you know, going through people's resumes, <laughs> right? Because in America, <laughs> right, you know this, right? Like yeah. when you submit a resume, it's being computer read and then it's forwarded. Yeah, right? Perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. yeah. I love and it. guess what? They said, everything I teach my students to do, use short sentences, use concrete language, use, you know, subject, verb, object, you know, kind of sentence structure. Um, are all the things that are recommended for when you write your resume in English for an AI. And I know that that's one of the things is that if I can teach my students to write simple short sentences that are with, you know, no abstract language, you know, cut out the adjectives, for example, include the details you want, that their stuff will translate very nicely from, you know, Japanese into English. They just have to learn the, you know, rules, but use a different language. So that now is going to raise some interesting questions about how we teach and how people learn and how they use language. Because usually, right, 
we have to teach them you have to think in English to use English, right? Is yes, what we sir. traditionally say. And it doesn't work. But now they're getting feedback. The problem is that we can give them feedback on their writing when they use machine translation. I think the big error, and we have to we can address this later at some point, is that we have to be able to give students tools so that they can check whether the machine translation actually worked. Yeah. And I you know, other than using things like language tools plus or grammarly. Not sure quite yet how they could do that without, you know, getting a native speaker to check what they're well, doing. Well, that's what I'm saying. That, that really comes in the value of a teacher, right? Because uh, the, the, the computer can do a lot for you. And at a certain point, it, it, it just can't go past, it just can't go past a certain point. And, um, something that probably I would, I'm assuming here, but I'm, I'm I don't think you'll argue with me. Um, that we would do with our students that I'm going to do to you know say to it to our listeners as well and to 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 reverse it and think about uh change you know your English being translated into Japanese by a computer and think about all the trouble that can get you into <laughs> and how language is so much more than you know swapping one word for another uh and as you just as you just said, like in order to speak English, you've really got to think in English. And yeah, sure as hell, if you're going to make any attempt, you know, to speak to speak Japanese, and you know, not use a machine to get your computer repaired, not to get you know, ask directions, but if you want to speak Japanese, you really need to think Japanese because the thinking is really really different. And our student, the the, the same challenges that we face with that um and it's so counter to so much <laughs> that we think it's just core and quote unquote common sense um is not at all and um that's where i think the gap is and that, and and that's where a computer translation is going to have a problem like yeah, at the, at the base level you know like the concrete objects actions concept it's fine you know i want a bigger desk okay um you know, i'm you know i'm not sure i can trust him oh, this gets a little bit harder but this is why i'm saying that i think english or language teaching is going to be flipped and we're going to yeah. start off with pragmatics and etiquette mm -hmm. and manners in the beginning Agree, agree, agree. That, you know, in other words, it's not going to be for advanced students. Usually what we do is we have, you know, the pragmatics and sure, sure, stuff sure. is saved for the more advanced classes. And I think what's going to happen is, no, we're going to start with pragmatics, explaining yeah. basic structures. You know, this is how greetings are done. This is the format. This is, you know, for example, question, response, open-ended question. You know, I do all this, but that's going to be a much more of a focus. And that students will be exposed to the pragmatics, and that's and kind of what I did too. I mean, I tried to, you know, as as much as I could, even at the lower levels. That's always what I've tried to do. Right, but, but I think you yeah. and I are exceptions in that because yeah, maybe. maybe I'll tell you, maybe. I know that. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I, you know, I used to teach at in Hokkaido. And at that university, you'd have the students for one-third of the semester, so like five weeks, five weeks, five weeks. And one of the other teachers you know, said to me, he goes, I always know when I have your students, <laughs> right? It says, first off, they always 
greet me. They always, you know, understand, thank you, you're welcome. They use thank you and you're welcome. And they ask questions. And they tend to use open-ended questions. And this pretty is good like, for five weeks, man. <laughs> it's pretty good. Well, I, well, that's what I drilled them for the five weeks. Right. That's what I considered my responsibility. Um, but what I'm saying is that I know that when I ask students, you know, I'll say, hey, wait a second. I just, I, you know, I'll say, here you are when I pass out a paper. And they don't say thank you. And I stop and I'll ask the class. I said, don't your other English teachers require you to say thank you or you're welcome in class when, you know, the teacher gives you papers? And they go, No. So I think that what you and I do, you know, which is to include the pragmatics at a very basic level, right? I mean, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I go off on manners because manners are really important, right. I think. Right, right, right. You know, and it's like, you know, it's like I said, you know, when the student goes, excuse me, I'm sorry, but my English, bad, please, right away you're going to be nice to that person because they've used those magic words excuse me or please but a lot of the other teachers don't teach that Mm -hmm. and you know if that's not reinforced across the board but then I'm going off the deep end the point of is that yes I think pragmatics are going to become increasingly important in primary and language teaching we're going to have to be teaching more discourse and rhetoric and that once the speech to speech translation systems get better you know it's gonna be the universal translator right from star trek right Mm. um i don't think that's far off so i think we're gonna have to just teach students more about the rules of engagement so to speak but anyway more for later i think because we're now at like one hour 13 this is a long episode talking about that fatigue factor there (laughs) yeah fatigue are you are you hinting tony making a hint about my talking yeah. Okay. I think it's a good t- place to wrap it up. You know, s- you know, people can think about what we have to say and you know, give us any comments or feedback about. Yeah. Well, it. we had two. We had two kind of hefty topics there, so I think yeah. I think we can be forgiven, right? I think so. Well, and we're on break. Ha! Huh. Oh, you're on break. You're on a really long break. I'm on. Well, it's 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 not as breaky as you might think. But I ain't complaining. <laughs> okay, you're on a break from teaching and work. There's other stuff you have. Everybody I know when they retire, right? Um, you know, that's a really strange thing when you start saying, everybody I know when they retire. I remember there was a point yeah, where I didn't so. know anyone who retired. <laughs> getting old, man, getting old. <laughs> I done got old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's wrap it up. Yeah. I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. Two teachers talking at... I guess at a lot of places. .com and uh, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. wherever. Two teachers talking. That's us. Okay. And we just want to thank our listeners for their support. Yeah. And enjoy the rest of your break. Uh, Fall semester will be here before you know it. Good luck. Yeah. I have some Um, predictions about that. We can talk about it the next episode. Yeah. But uh, but for now, (laughs) for now, let's let's just focus on the break. Let's try to Enjoy your time, everybody. Enjoy your Enjoy your time and stay healthy. Stay healthy. Yes. Be careful. And and get ready. (laughs) (laughs) And get ready for what's coming. Okay. Yep. All right, Tony. Be well. See you. <laughs> <laughs>